there and welcome to Unknown Friends. You have tuned into book review number 11 of the season. And as always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions. Thank you so much for listening today and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you have not already. Now, today's discussion is a continuation from our last episode two weeks ago. We are currently exploring Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, devoting one episode to each of the three parts, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. Last time I discussed Dante's life and the overall structure and purpose of the Divine Comedy, and we talked in some detail about Inferno. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you will want to do so before you continue with today's episode, in which we're moving forward and focusing on part two, Purgatorio. So throughout our discussion today, um, it's important to remember that there are two different people here that we need to distinguish between, Dante the writer and Dante the character the traveler through the afterlife, or the pilgrim, as he's often called. This is kind of a younger version of Dante. It's the Dante that the writer is looking back on. He's seeing himself at an earlier stage of his life when he now realizes he had a great deal to learn. And in large part, the Divine Comedy is an account of this younger Dante's education. It's his personal journey to self-knowledge and transformation. And so that's what we're going to concentrate on today for the most part. First, though, um, a big picture look at Purgatorio, this middle section of the Divine Comedy. So Inferno took Dante the Pilgrim into the earth, down through the levels of the pit of hell to the earth's very center, And what happened then is that Dante traveled all the way through the earth and emerges at the base of a tall mountain, which is exactly opposite to the entrance of hell on the other side of the globe. And then structurally, Mount Purgatory is like an inversion of the pit of hell, but not an exact one. The mountain, too, has levels, And they are categorized in a similar way to the levels of hell, except in the opposite order, and with some differences. So the circles of hell go uh, from the top down, the level for virtuous pagans, then the one for the lustful, then the gluttonous, the greedy, the wrathful, the heretical, the violent, the fraudulent, and finally the treacherous at the very bottom. On the flip side, the terraces of Mount Purgatory, uh, moving from the base of the mountain up, are first the level of late repentant sinners, and then the terrace of the proud, then of the envious, the wrathful, the slothful, the greedy, the gluttonous, and finally the lustful at the very top of the mountain. And all the sinners in these levels are uh, moving or preparing to move up the mountain. Sometimes there are things they must experience on their terrace before they can climb, but ultimately the way to paradise is up the mountain, so that is everyone's ultimate direction. 
Now, interestingly, once we get to part three, Paradiso, we will find that there also seem to be levels in heaven. But Dante lets us know that really there aren't levels in heaven, but this is just kind of uh, his human attempt to grasp the incomprehensible form of paradise. Now, let me just say, with all this intricate structure of the different realms of the afterlife, it can sometimes seem like Dante is almost too focused on the specific sins, um, you know, categorizing some things as worse or better than others, and getting almost bogged down in the analysis of different vices and things. Um, Or he can even come across as um, kind of a judgy uh, control freak, using his artist's privilege as a writer to make all these scores upon scores of judgments about individuals' fates, and usually real historical individuals, some of whom Dante knew personally before their deaths. So uh, essentially, Dante can appear to be playing God, and in a legalistic way too, especially when he gets into all the uh, nitty-gritties of who deserves what specific fate and what level of hell and, uh, you know, what exact sin was each person's chief downfall and things like that. But what we see more and more, especially once we get out of Inferno and into Purgatorio and Paradiso, is Dante's overarching vision and his recognition of uh, the mysteries of God's will. Dante, the writer, makes it pretty clear that he is only a human, and his imagination of the afterlife is human and insufficient. So he deliberately surprises us, especially in Purgatorio and even in Paradiso, with individuals who don't seem to fit into the structure he has seemingly established in Inferno. So for instance, Um, Kind of an astounding example is right at the start of Purgatorio. So Dante, the pilgrim, and his guide, Virgil, arrive at Mount Purgatory, and the very first soul they meet is Cato, who is the mountain's guardian. Now Cato, Cato the Younger, was a Stoic and uh, a Roman senator in the first century B.C., who believed in the values of the Roman Republic and uh, resisted the tyrannical power of Julius Caesar. And ultimately, Cato took his own life rather than submit to Caesar. Now, sinners who committed suicide have their own level in Dante's hell, right? Like, he's, he's got a place prepared for them. But Cato's not there. He is in purgatory. Why? I mean, Dante is the writer. He's in charge. He can put people exactly where he thinks they belong in the afterlife. Uh, And he is under no obligation to make exceptions to his own rules. But he does. And he doesn't really explain to us in Purgatorio why or how Cato has avoided being assigned to Inferno. But Cato's appearance in Purgatory should give us pause and make us realize that there are nuances we may not understand. Uh, Even Dante may not understand. There are mysteries that we can't always explain. 
And Dante is perfectly fine with that. In fact, he encourages that realization in his readers. He recognizes that the systems we try to use to explain everything can't explain everything in terms we understand. Um, And God's justice and his mercy are beyond our systems. And not only does Dante uh, permit unexplained exceptions to his rules, but he also offers a much bigger picture of life than we might realize if we're too focused on the particulars of the systems he's created. So yes, he categorizes and analyzes specific vices and virtues to try to get a better understanding of them, but he also sees some very basic underlying realities that he really wants to convey to us. He often steps way back from the the technicalities of virtue or vice in order to try to show us a vision of what he sees as the unifying elemental truths about life. So for instance, you can really look at the structure of Mount Purgatory in at least two ways. First, you can see all the terraces that I already listed. Uh, Seven terraces, which for the record, correspond to the traditional seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. But you can also step back and see a broader organization in the mountain's structure. Dante claims that all of these sins can be understood as uh, desire problems of one sort or another. Uh, disordered desires, problems in in what the heart is directed toward or how it directs its love or desire. And then the terms love and desire, by the way, get uh, somewhat conflated here, which I think is kind of unhelpful, but it is what it is. They're more or less interchangeable. So in, um, in Canto 17, of Purgatorio, we get an actual explanation of the structure of Mount Purgatory in terms of the different kinds of desire that Dante says cause people to sin. So Dante's guide, Virgil, explains it this way. He says, the soul's love strays if it desires what's wrong or loves with too much strength or not enough. So three different kinds of problems of disordered loves, misdirected desire, insufficient desire, or excessive desire. So with this, Dante is trying to get to the heart of things, to the root of different vices, and he sees these three problems as fundamental The seven deadly sins, he says, flow out of these desire problems. So Dante suggests specifically that pride, envy, and wrath originate from misdirected love, uh, for instance, self-love. And then he suggests that slothfulness comes from a, a lack, a deficiency of love or desire for anything. Whereas, uh, finally, greed, gluttony, and lust, he says, result from excessive love. Love for good things, generally speaking, 
but not for the supreme good, which is God himself. So in these three different ways, Dante sees disordered desire or love as the root of many different kinds of sin. Now, interestingly, uh, the broader categories here are framed differently in Inferno than they are in Purgatorio. In Inferno, things are not usually put in terms of wrong love. Instead, uh, for instance, sins like lust, gluttony, and greed are categorized as originating from a lack of self-control, whereas in Purgatory they're described as an excess of desire. Similar problems, but I would say it puts the sins in different lights depending on how you describe them. Lack of self-control versus excess of desire. So in other words, Dante's structures are more complex than we might think. He likes to look at things from many different angles, and, and he tries to develop a nuanced understanding of sin and the human soul. He makes us think and ask questions if we're paying attention. Anyway, that is uh, the overarching structure of Mount Purgatory, and part of Dante the Pilgrim's education as he travels through the realms of the afterlife comes from uh, these explorations of the nature of sin and the nature of human desires. Let's talk a little bit more about Dante's moral education, the personal growth that the young Dante desperately needs. And in order to have that discussion, we really need to jump back just for a moment to the very beginning of Inferno. So before Dante um, begins his journey and first enters hell, the Divine Comedy actually opens at an intriguing moment. Let me just read to you the first three lines of the Divine Comedy um, in Anthony Esselin's translation. This is, it goes like this. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wilderness, for I had wandered from the straight and true. And just a few lines later, Dante adds, How I had entered, I can't bring to mind. I was so full of sleep just at that point when I first left the way of truth behind. Okay, so we have Dante, the younger Dante, lost in the middle of life in the dark, in a wilderness, having strayed from the way of truth and unable even to recall how or when he left the path. So, obscurity, confusion, ignorance. Dante the writer is looking back on his younger self, now able to recognize that he had gotten miserably lost spiritually. And that's why he needs a spiritual education, a journey to take him back to the way of truth. So that's the moment when Dante the Pilgrim is met by a guide, the poet Virgil, who was sent by a soul in heaven, Beatrice, who we will talk about later, uh, to find and help Dante. And Virgil then leads him down into hell and eventually up Mount Purgatory. But that's where it all started. Young Dante lost wandering through darkness. And while the journey that follows is very personal, 
I find it fascinating that he kind of draws us into it from the very first line. Midway upon the journey of our life, he writes, I found myself in a dark wilderness. So yes, he confesses that he personally, individually, was lost. But he introduces that confession with midway upon the journey of our life. So I think in some sense, the poem has to be universal. And we should learn from it just as much as Dante the Pilgrim does. To some extent, we all need the moral education that Dante receives. So then, what does this moral education, this spiritual education, look like? We talked um, in the last episode about Dante's explorations of sin in Inferno, and to just sum that up, we could say that the pilgrim's journey through hell teaches him to recognize the reality of sin in others. At the beginning of Inferno, the first few sinners that Dante meets, he just feels pity for. He doesn't really understand the true nature of their sin. It's, it's repulsiveness and the self-harm that it causes for the sinner. He just feels bad for souls like Paolo and Francesca, who, um, it seems to him, are kind of getting a worse punishment than they really deserve. And his misunderstanding comes not only from his own ignorance, but also from the misleading testimonies of the sinners themselves. So as you read Inferno, it's crucial to realize that the many souls who tell Dante their stories, by and large, are not honest. They're not reliable. In their accounts of themselves, they often blame others for their own choices, and they paint themselves in as positive a light as possible. But eventually, after hearing enough of these accounts, with Virgil's help, Dante the Pilgrim starts to realize the truth. He starts to see through the sinner's misleading stories. And so this is the beginning of his spiritual education. He begins to perceive the truth about other people and their sins. And by the end of his journey through hell, he has learned enough to acknowledge the justice of the sinner's punishments. And he's been shown the ugly reality of sin clearly enough to be repulsed now by hell, by Satan, and by the sinful choices that led so many souls to their miserable fates. In purgatory, however, Dante still needs to learn about himself. He can see through other people's pride and dishonesty, but he still needs to recognize and confess and repent of his own. And along with that, while he has learned to find sin distasteful, he still needs to develop a stronger desire for what is good, for virtue, and ultimately for paradise and for God. He has a small desire for these things, but the journey of Purgatorio will be needed to uh, fan the spark of desire into a flame. But uh, for now, Dante's journey to self-knowledge 
is what we're going to focus on for the remainder of this episode. Next time, we'll talk a bit more about desire in the Divine Comedy. So while the souls in purgatory often spend years and years of human time climbing the mountain and being purged of their sins and life, Dante the Pilgrim is just passing through. He's not dead yet, right? And so he can take the journey quite quickly. He gets like the the time-lapse version of Purgatory. So he manages the whole ascent in just a couple days. And he not only witnesses Purgatory, but he truly participates in it, uh, just in a very efficient way. So unlike in Hell, where each sinner receives a punishment that is an extreme or perhaps mirrored version of their sin... In purgatory are souls who sinned in life, but they have turned toward God and have this opportunity now to be purged of their former vices and freed from sin. And so the purpose of their time in purgatory is not punishment, but rather they are being educated and being habituated to the virtues that they lacked in life. Sometimes suffering is involved in the education, but it is in no way punishment. It is the learning process. So, for instance, the slothful in purgatory must continually run around their terrace of the mountain. So they were lazy and uncommitted in life, and so what they need is energy and zeal and commitment. And the way they acquire those positive traits in Dante's imagination is by constantly running until they have become habituated to uh, the virtue of industriousness, shall we say. And they can then ascend the mountain up to paradise. So that's just one example. Uh, But all the different kinds of vices are treated in a similar way and cured in time. And so Dante, following Virgil, climbs the mountain, uh, learning what happens on each terrace, and talking with individuals who are going through the purging process. And as he goes through this, he begins to recognize the vices that he has. Pride, for instance. And the recognition alone is huge. Uh, Self-knowledge, this is a vital element of Dante's spiritual education. And, of course, ours as well. So eventually Dante gets to the top of the mountain. And he has learned not only to abhor evil in others, but also in himself. And yet even this knowledge is still sort of in his head only. So I mentioned that as part of Dante's moral education, he participates in purgatory. And up to this point, he's really only... Um, observed it. At some point, he's going to have to bite the bullet and experience the painful process of actually shedding his vices. And this is going to involve suffering. I think getting free from sin is always painful, even though it's unquestionably worth it. Well, for Dante, this point of personal suffering, personal purgation, comes to a head in Canto 27 
of Purgatorio. He's climbed up all the terraces of the mountain, and he comes face to face with a wall of fire. And the only way forward is through the flames. He is stopped in his tracks, and he does not feel like he will have the courage to enter the flames, uh, much less make it all the way through. But Virgil, his guide, tells him that Beatrice, whom I mentioned earlier, will meet Dante on the other side of the fire. Now, sorry to interrupt, but quick background, because I haven't had the chance to um, introduce Beatrice before now, even though she is referenced from the very first canto of the poem. So Beatrice, or more properly Beatrice Portinari, was a real young Italian woman whom the real Dante knew and fell in love with when he was a young man, but she died in her 20s. So they never uh, had a relationship, he just admired her from afar and kind of idealized her in his poetry after her death. He viewed her as uh, really a saintly person, and in his poetry, especially the Divine Comedy, she kind of comes to symbolize divine love and divine blessedness, which is what her name actually means. So, long story short, in Canto One of Inferno, Virgil told Dante that it was Beatrice who saw Dante lost and in darkness and sent Virgil to help guide him out of the wilderness. Well, we learn that Virgil can't take Dante all the way into paradise. He can only conduct him through hell and purgatory, and Beatrice is going to be Dante's guide for the last leg of his journey. And we'll talk more about Beatrice and about Dante's loves and desires in our next episode, but that's just a quick synopsis of who she is and why her name uh, kind of lights up Dante when Virgil tells him that the wall of fire on the top of Mount Purgatory is the only thing now keeping Dante from seeing Beatrice. So that information is enough to motivate Dante. He grits his teeth and walks into the flames. And it is agonizingly painful, but he makes it through. And once they're through, before Dante encounters Beatrice, Virgil makes a really interesting and important pronouncement. He turns to Dante and he says, The temporal and eternal fire, my son, you have now seen. Your judgment now is free and whole and true. Lord of yourself, I crown and mitre you. Now this is a crucial moment. The journey isn't over. There is still lots more to learn, but it seems like this is a turning point. Like some segment, at least, of his education is now complete. Dante still has an incomplete understanding of God, uh, and even his self-knowledge isn't quite perfect yet, I don't think, but he's really close with self-knowledge. And what Virgil seems to be saying at this moment is that Dante has achieved self-control. He has mastered, um, specifically, his own will by freely choosing to walk through the fire to reach something worth reaching, even if his body didn't want to suffer through fire. This is a crucial step in his spiritual education. 
And this is one of the clearest moments when we see how far Dante has come since the beginning of the Divine Comedy, when he had strayed from the true path and was aimlessly wandering in darkness. Virgil now crowns and mitres Dante, lord of himself. And the Italian here is really significant. What Virgil actually literally says is, I crown and mitre you over yourself. Te sovra te in the Italian. Now this is actually kind of an echo of a phrase from the Inferno. There's an interesting passage where Dante and Virgil are talking to one of the sinners there who committed suicide. And when the man describes how he'd sinned, he says that it was me contra me, me against myself. And me against myself is really a perfect way to describe any sin. We discussed in our last episode how when we sin, we are not truly acting in our own best interest. We are inviting misery and pain into our lives. So sin always is me against myself. And on the flip side, when we achieve self-control, mastery over our own will and, and lesser desires, then we find freedom. And that's what Dante has achieved, according to Virgil. Te sovra te, you over yourself. So that is a vital development in Dante's education and personal growth. And it, I think, represents the accomplishment of purgatory up to this point. Now, uh, I am running out of time, uh, but there is one more necessary spiritual step for Dante to take in Purgatorio, and that happens when he meets Beatrice. Uh, but I think I'm actually going to save that discussion for next time, because even though it technically happens in part two of the Divine Comedy, it very much leads into part three, Paradiso. And so I think it will actually work well to cover that in our last episode of this little series. So right here is where we will stop for today. Uh, sorry for the cliffhanger. Just be sure to tune in again for the next episode to hear all about Dante the Pilgrim's final step of repentance when he meets Beatrice, and then his next level of spiritual education as he experiences paradise and learns more about virtue and heaven and the nature of God himself. So thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate you being here, and I hope you are enjoying our exploration of the Divine Comedy. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I'll see you next time as we get to explore Dante's paradise. <laughs>